Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Keith Folk. He's the head of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, Canada at University of Manitoba. And we're going to talk about his work. So, Keith, thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, tell me, what, what's the focus of your research? My research is trying to determine new ways of preventing people from getting HIV. I know, but, you know, I guess in treatment, there's been AZT, there's been various cocktails or drugs, et cetera, to help people live with the condition, manage it. But in terms of first getting it, that I haven't heard talked about very much. But what are some of the, you know, what's some of the common practices right now? Is it just, you know, use of condoms during sex or like what, what are some of the protocols to help people not get infected in the first place? Yeah, there's um, the sort of the standard behavioral prevention, such as limiting the number of sex partners, um, using a condom um, and uh, that kind of thing. Um, we've done, I do work in Nairobi, Kenya, and we study sex workers in Kenya who are exposed to HIV through, the, through their sex work. Um, not all the time are they able to use condoms. And we've observed that even though they've been exposed to HIV for years and even decades, many of them don't become infected. And so we've been studying these HIV-resistant women for a number of years and um, have learned a little bit about their unique immune system and are now trying to uh, take that information to uh, develop new ways of preventing other women. So what, what do you think makes them resistant? There's probably a couple of uh, different things. People will be familiar with when, let's say, uh, the, uh, a regular cold virus goes through uh, a family. There's always someone in your family who seems to become infected very easily, and other person, people in your family seem never to get a cold. Well, that's true also on a population level where you see uh, some people are really susceptible to infections or, and other people are hard. It's more difficult for them to, uh, to become infected. They're more resistant to infection. And we even see that in COVID where some people are really susceptible to COVID and others aren't. So there's natural variations in the population. And so we think part of that variation is due to genetics, that some people have uh, particular immune genes that are able to protect them from getting HIV infection. And others that we think that it may be something that develops um, over time. And um, I can get into a little bit of the details. Well, yeah, develops over time. That would mean that, have you seen women that get infected with, with AIDS and show symptoms, but then they go away and the person seems to uh, heal themselves or, you know, the virus uh, goes latent within them somehow for a long period of time? Not in the population that we study. Uh, so that, uh, there are some cases of that. Those are called elite controllers, people that are infected by the virus, but their body controls it. The women that we're studying are women who are highly exposed to HIV. But even when we look at the molecular level in their blood, we find no evidence of the, the virus infecting. So they seem to be um, just not getting infected at all. 
And um, but do those women do those women report ever showing any symptoms, or they never feel anything? No, no, they never show any symptoms. And when we look not only for the presence of the virus in their blood, but also markers of their immune system to see how healthy their immune system is, their immune system is fine and healthy. Um, so it's just that the virus isn't getting established inside their. Blood. Why do you think that is? What what's blocking it? You, yeah. you literally just see like barely any or no virus in them at all. Yeah, there's so in in a different group. In, there is a group uh, in Caucasians. There is um, a gene mutation that it's in a gene called CCR5, which is one of the receptors that HIV uses to get inside the cell. Some some individuals, some Caucasians have this gene, and it's an an altered version of that gene. It's a polymorphism. It's a different version of the gene, and as a result that molecule is not expressed on the surface of their cells and therefore HIV can't into their cells. Um, but in African populations, we don't see that. So there are some genetic basis for why some people don't become infected. But in our group, what we see in Africa is it's more based on their immune system. So HIV doesn't infect every cell in your body. It only infects certain cells. And those are sort of the quarterback of the immune system or the conductor of the orchestra that is the immune system, uh, those are called CD4 cells, and they're like a master regulator. Those CD4 cells is what HIV infects, and when HIV kills that cell, then the immune system isn't able to coordinate itself properly, and that results in people, their immune system not working and people getting AIDS, uh, dying of other... But it's HIV doesn't infect every CD4 cell, it only infects certain ones, and it infects cells that preferentially infect cells that are activated. So think of your immune cell as, as maybe a, a factory. And if it's a um, highly active factory with lots of uh, production happening, the, uh, the doors are opening and deliveries are coming in and getting all the way to the center, to the nucleus of the, of the factory, um, a virus can get inside that environment, invade it, and establish itself very easily. Um, whereas if you think of a, another, an, another scenario where the, the cell is dormant or is just sitting there resting, uh, that's like a, a factory that's been shut down and the doors aren't open, the alarm system is, uh, is activated. The virus just can't find a way into that, into that factory and establish it. So the HIV is more able to infect and replicate in an activated cell. Activated cells are also the cells that move from the blood into the, an area of inflammation. So if I cut my finger and it gets infected, the finger turns all and around the cut, it turns all red. And what that is, is immune cells are leaving your blood and they're going to the site of infection to, to fight the infection. What happens is that um, if, uh, if those cells are moving from the blood into the genital tract, and there, um, and HIV is introduced at the genital tract, then that's a perfect environment for HIV to find these activated cells. Not only are there more of them because it's a part of the inflammation process and they've moved from the blood into the genital tract, but also the cells are turned on and HIV is able to uh, infect those cells uh, a thousand times more efficient than a cell that is resting. So in these women from Nairobi, the ones that don't become infected with HIV, what we noticed is that at the genital tract level, their immune system is very calm and relaxed. It's not highly activated. In some people, it's highly activated, uh, but in these women, it's very calm. They don't have a lot of 
activated CD4 cells that would be ideal targets for HIV. So what we thinking, what we think is happening is that they are being exposed to HIV, but the immune environment in the general tract is just not conducive for them uh, establishing a for HIV establishing an infection. So the real goal to the research is, you know, how can we learn, take that information and use it for a new HIV prevention technology. Um, in the women that uh, you say never get infected, have any of them volunteered or has there been a study done where, you know, you test them for their viral titer of, you know, HIV every month for let's say a whole year? Because during that time, they're doing the sex working and they should be re-exposed over and over and over. And maybe you could see what happens in their body. Does it gain any traction or what happens? You know? Yeah, so we've done those kind of experiments where we've, we've looked in their blood for any evidence of infection over uh, decades, and, um, and we see no evidence of infection. Now, if we take their cells and we take them out of their blood and we put them into a test tube and we stimulate their cells artificially so that the cells get turned on and become activated, and then we add HIV um, in the test tube, we can see that their cells uh, can be infected by HIV. So it's not that there's an absolute block from their cells getting infected. It's just that in the normal in the normal environment, they don't have a lot of the activated immune cells in the general tract. Therefore, the risk of getting it is lower than uh, other women. So what does that say that says that, that what their immune systems aren't, uh, do they tend to get sick with other things or they have a pretty adequate immune system? It's just that... Uh... You know, in terms of HIV, it's not very, uh, I don't know how to put this, but it's, I guess it's not on a hair trigger with HIV. It's not, yeah, uh, yeah uh, no, it's a, to it very strongly. Yeah, it's a great question. The immune system is all about balance. And if your immune system is overly activated, then people um, will often develop autoimmunity. So your immune system starts fighting at the, your own body. And so you don't want that. Yeah, you don't want a, a hyperactive immune Likewise, you don't want uh, an immune impairment where the immune system doesn't work at all and you can get infection from other uh, infections such as viruses or bacteria or other things. So it's all about having a balance. And what we think is that these women who have a quiet immune system, we call immune quiescence, have struck a balance so that when they need to respond to a challenge, and we've tested this in the, in the lab, we've exposed their cells to things like influenza um, that they should have seen and be able to respond to. Yes, they can respond when they need to. Um, so it's not that their immune system is broken and it can't respond to anything. It's just that it's quiet and calm until it needs to respond and then it responds and then it returns back down to a, to a baseline. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Do these women tend to get sick less often than other women or more often or in a different way or just get slight symptoms and never get very sick? What, what do you observe? 
they get other infections. So it's not like they, they never get, uh, they're not resistant to everything that comes along. They get other things like herpes infections and, and other infections. So it, it's not that resisting everything out. It's just that uh, in particular to HIV, they're not getting HIV. And yet they're super susceptible for, to everything that comes along getting uh, uh, they're resisting most infection uh, regularly. Well, based on their response or lack of response, are there any other conditions that you think they would respond in a similar way to? They wouldn't respond as badly. And you know, what else are they protected against, for instance? Yeah, they, um, HIV is unique in that it really uh, focuses on infecting activated. Um, and so the, the women are, um, I think it's unique. Their quiescent immune system places them in a unique position, uh, fight off HIV, whereas something like a bacterial infection, they're, they're not as. So the, the focus of our research now is how do we, how can we take that information and apply it to others? And what my lab is really focusing now on is can we prevent HIV infection, not by focusing on the virus. So we were talking earlier about ways of preventing HIV, including using a condom and changing your partners and, uh, and maybe taking uh, there's some HIV medications that people who are highly exposed to HIV can take. All of those things focus on the virus, but there's two sides to the uh, to the equation. One is the virus, and the other is the cell. You need both of those things to come together to make an HIV infection. So we're focusing not on the virus, but trying to keep that activated immune cell from migrating to the genital tract where HIV could infect it. And so if we're thinking of ways to try to limit how an immune cell moves from the blood into tissue. That's the inflammation process. So there's lots of drugs that are anti-inflammatory. And so we did a study looking at a very safe and well-known anti-inflammatory drug to see if it would decrease the number of HIV target cells. In and that drug was aspirin. So we've done a study to look whether aspirin can help to create an environment that would be conducive to people not getting HIV infection. Interesting. I don't know. Does this reveal anything about the mechanism of HIV itself? You know, by, um, by observing these women's cells and their response to it or lack of response. Yeah. So the in the we did a pilot study where we took women and we exposed uh, and they took low dose aspirin, eighty one milligrams, uh, and they took that uh, daily for six weeks. And that's the same amount of aspirin that sometimes people will take to prevent uh, if they have cardiovascular disease and they want to prevent um, inflammation that can cause problems with cardiovascular. Um, that's the amount that takes. So there's hundreds of thousands of people globally who are taking that low amount of aspirin every day for years and years, and it's quite sick. So we asked uh, from, from Nairobi to take aspirin for six weeks, and we observed a 35% decrease in the number of HIV target cells in the general, in women who have aspirin. So it doesn't directly say that they're less susceptible to HIV, but if there's fewer HIV target cells in the genital tract, then there's a decrease, should they become exposed to HIV, that um, that would result in the infection. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So would this be used as like a prophylaxis, you know, before you have sex, take an aspirin an hour before and use a condom, et cetera, and would that be a recommendation? Yeah. So what we want to do is provide options for people. Um, we think of it as the HIV prevention toolkit. And not all tools are useful for, for everyone. So if someone only has an occasional sex partner and they're looking to protect themselves, 
then you know focusing on condoms is, is the best option. Um, however, for for people that are highly exposed to HIV, then they might want to take an antiretroviral medication, but some people don't like to, to take those drugs. They do have side effects. And the women that we were working with in Nairobi said that they're, they know aspirin and they're familiar with it. And they would like, they would feel that that would be something safe. So the idea is that someone could use a condom, they could uh, take aspirin, and they could maybe take an antiretroviral or choose different sex partners. That's not always possible. Women who are sex workers um, often don't have a great ability to select who they're having sex with. They have sex with the clients and um, often they're paid more to have sex without a condom. And so uh, there's lots of reasons why women are empowered to use other prevention methods. So anything that we can do to be uh, another tool in the toolkit is an important goal. And we're hoping that aspirin is one of the tools we can prove would be beneficial. So what do you have to do to prove it? Do you have to do a clinical trial or in situations like in Africa, do you just offer it or like what can you do what are the rules there yeah so what we can i mean one of the advantages of of this is that we don't have to uh, we know that aspirin is safe and we know that it's already distributed throughout the world it's not like we think of the covid vaccine now and one of the challenges is getting the therapy getting the vaccine out to the the people good thing with aspirin is it's already in every small kiosk um, in every pharmacy around the world just need the solid scientific data that it's going to help. So the next steps are that we need to, the first study that we did was in women from a general population. And now we're going to do a a study looking at uh, specifically sex workers who are at high risk uh, to see if we can see a similar effect. And we're going to compare sort of the baby dose of aspirin, the 81 milligram, to a regular dose of aspirin. So to see if we see a greater effect when using more aspirin or whether the same effect can be observed with, and also see if it can be maintained for longer than just six weeks to see if we can observe it for up to six. And, well, how long does a dose of aspirin tend to last in the reducing, you know, the, the amount of uh, cells available to the virus? Yeah, we don't know that. What we did was we just asked women to take aspirin every day and then once a month we took their blood assessment. So we don't know how long it would how long the effect would last um, and whether they could get away with taking three or four times a week. Right, right now, we're just at daily daily dose of aspirin. But the long-term goal would be to do exactly what you had suggested with a large clinical trial where we um, study thousands of and um, know that uh, despite all of our HIV prevention efforts, some of them, uh, unfortunately, will become infected with HIV and see whether a subset of those who are taking aspirin would be, would be less susceptible to getting HIV than a comparative control group. Well, what happens right now with the women that you told to take aspirin every day for a month? Did none of them get HIV? Did a few of them less than what would be normally seen, like what was observed? Yeah, so there, these were women from the general population, so they weren't sex workers, and there was no there was no HIV uh, infections amongst the, the women over the six weeks that, uh, that we studied them, and we followed them up. Um, six months later and no infection. Was this a clinical trial or was this just, I mean, how did you do this? Um, We did it as a uh, clinical pilot study. So we studied, uh, the comparison group was um, women before they took the drug. So we took samples before women were on the, and then they took aspirin. And six weeks later, uh, we measured their immune response. So we compared levels pre-drug and post-drug and saw this 35%. You know, in order to do it in sex workers, do you need a trial or could you do the exact same thing? 
We're actually going to do it in a more rigorous way where we have a, a subgroup of women that are not taking any drug and then as another group that are taking low-dose aspirin, regular-strength aspirin, and we're going to compare between the three groups, so more in a clinical. Okay, that's it. Long-term goal would be to actually... So what we're measuring uh, in these studies is that activated CD4 HIV target cell in the general trial. And that's what our primary outcome measurement is to really determine if it's going to have an effect in HIV prevention. The outcome that you want to measure will be HIV infection. And um, for that, we need uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people. But what about people that are on HIV drugs? Why not use aspirin maybe to heighten the effect of the drugs or people that have recently been infected? Could they use aspirin to slow the... uh the advancement of HIV inside themselves? Yeah, there have been studies looking at um, HIV causes, once it gets inside the cell, uh, inside the body, it causes huge activation of the immune system. And in studies where they've looked at whether aspirin can bring down that level of inflammation, it doesn't look like aspirin really has much of an effect once someone is already in. But we are, we do have studies planned where we're going to look at women who are taking antiretroviral medication um, and seeing if if we add on aspirin to that, whether it can have an effect. So there is, there was a study where they used a, a topical agent uh, in the general vagina that um, has an anti-HIV medication. And they saw that um, when women, be- before they had sex, if they used this topical agent with H- anti-HIV drugs in it, they were at a reduced risk of heat, which is good news. But the bad news is if, if the women also had inflammation in their genital tract, from things like bacterial vaginosis or uh, other inflammations in the genital tract, which are quite common, then the protective effect of the anti-HIV medications in their genital tract was completely wiped out by inflammation. So what we want to do is see if we can bring down levels of inflammation with aspirin, and that may help and boost the effects of antiviral medication. Why would why does inflammation you think counteract the beneficial effects of, of aspirin? Is it because it's the immune system is in a constant activated state. So maybe even if the uh, the aspirin brings down like the numbers of a certain kind of receptor, maybe they're heightened to the point where it doesn't affect the infection. Yeah, I, what I was referring to is that that inflammation counteracts the effect of the not aspirin, but it it counteracts the effect of the antiretroviral medication we're taking, protease inhibitors, and um, uh, other classes of HIV prevention medication that people. So what. What we think is happening there is that if you have inflammation in the general tract, then uh, all of these activated immune cells flow into the general tract, they become infected. And even though there's anti-HIV medications there, it's not sufficient to prevent HIV from, from replicating. So uh, the additional layer of preventing the immune cell from getting to the general tract at all through um, using an anti-inflammatory agent such as Aspirin, we think, is um, would be have an added benefit. Are there people in which um, HIV is a lot more aggressive and fast and really knocks them down? And is that correlated with them being inflamed in the first place? Yeah, there's uh, individuals who, once they become HIV infected, progress very rapidly. And there's a number of factors that contribute to that. One is the type of virus that they get. Secondly, it's their the genetics of their immune system. Uh, some individuals have. Um, we all have different genetics and especially at the immune system. That's where the variation in our human genome is at its greatest. 
And some people just have versions of the different immune genes that um, don't fight off HIV infection very efficiently and, and they get infected uh, very quickly. But also um, some individuals have high levels of immune activation uh, just naturally. And once they become infected, they progress very rapidly. There's a number of different factors, but yes, in some individuals, having a highly activated immune system can lead to faster disease progression once infected. Is there any protocol um, you know, for people newly infected where you'd actually suppress their immune response for a period of time so that uh, perhaps the you know, HIV won't take hold? No, the challenge with that is that um, the immune system actually does a fairly good job of controlling the amount of virus. Um, once HIV first gets into an infection, it it sort of, the immune system hasn't had a chance to adapt to it yet. And HIV replicates at, at very high levels. Then the immune system kicks in within a couple of weeks and uh, it starts suppressing the amount of virus. So you see the amount of virus dropping down in the blood until it receives a baseline level. Now, the problem is that the immune system isn't able to completely eliminate all of the virus in blood. So it's long infection, but the immune system does control the amount of virus. So the challenge is, is you you don't want to have the immune system overly activated, but you also don't want to suppress it because it is doing a fairly decent job in controlling the infection initially, although it doesn't eliminate it. Yeah, why does HIV go latent in people or inactive or dormant for a period of time, sometimes years? Why do you think that happens? Yeah, that happens So on a, in, uh, at a cellular level. There'll be some cells that are HIV infected that uh, continue to replicate at high levels uh, and kick out the virus. But there's also some cells that are HIV infected where the virus goes into um, this latent and that's where it just um, it sits in a quiet immune cell and uh, it just sits there dormant until years later that cell becomes activated and then um, that cell starts to, uh, the factory becomes turned on and uh, HIV is then woken up and to replicate in there. So in any one infected individual, you would have these active replicating cells, and those are the cells that anti-HIV medications, the protease inhibitors and the nucleoside analogs, integrase inhibitors, those kinds of medications are able to suppress the replicating virus. But there's also these, these reservoirs of HIV that are hiding in these quiet immune cells. And that's a, a real holy grail for looking for an HIV cure is how can you either keep these, these reservoir immune cells quiet all the time so that they never wake up and produce more virus? Or how do you force them all to wake up so that you can use anti-HIV medications to clear the virus from those cells. So that's uh, an area of research. What do you think HIV is monitoring for, you know, the condition of the host that tells it, okay, go latent or okay, come on out and infect again? I think a lot of it is just due to chance. HIV is such a hard virus to, to develop a vaccine to because it mutates so quickly. So if you think of influenza, so every year there's a different influenza um, strain that's circulating around. And uh, so they have to develop a new vaccine to it. And we all get shot for that uh, vaccine. And we hope, oh, I hope this vaccine matches closely to what the circulating virus is going to Well, if you take all of the influenza viruses throughout the whole world, uh, 
um, and did a genetic map of them. And then if you took one person who was HIV infected, after three or four years, the amount of viral diversity in that one HIV infected person would be more than all of the influenza genetic variation in the world. So the amount of HIV, it makes lots of mistakes when it's replicating itself. And the most of those mistakes result in the virus being defective. So one out of every, only one out of every 1,000 to one out of every 10,000 viruses are actually able to be to replicate itself. The rest are uh, have made mistakes and they're they're no good. But the this sort of random mutation that um, can occasionally give the virus a benefit, and it can be a benefit by mutating around the anti-HIV drug medication or it can mutate around the immune response. You might have an immune response that is controlling the virus, and then the virus mutates. And one of these uh, variants is um, not recognized by the immune system. And so that one survives and replicates and goes on very well. So in terms of the the reservoir, some viruses will go into uh, a latent stage just based on the nature of the cell that they infect, nothing to do with the virus itself, but the, the virus, that, the cell that they get into is a cell that is quiet and resting and is going to sit there for 10 years before it does anything. And um, so I think that's part of it is the genetics of the virus, uh, but part of it is just the, the chance of what cells does the virus get into and what's the destiny of that cell. And if that cell is destined to sit quiet for 10 years and not do anything, then that's where the reservoir is hidden next to it. But how do you know that, you know, the the virion progeny, most of them are not going to be effective? Like, you know, if you sampled people and you see what a bunch of misshapen virions or, you know, their sequences are such that, like, how can you tell that, that they wouldn't be able to infect cells? Yeah. And that um, there's such a low fidelity rate of, of good copies. Yeah. We, there's a couple of things we, you can do. You can take um, in, in, the, in the lab, you can grow virus and you can look through an electron microscope and count the number of viruses that are there visually. And then you can take that sample and dilute it down such that there should only be one virus per sample. And then you use that to infect new cells. And what you'll find is that the majority of those virus particles, um, although they look like viruses, um, they're actually, they don't result in a productive infection. And the same is if you look for the genetic material of the virus, you can see that there's so many virus viral copies in a sample. But then when you go to see how many of those are actually infectious by putting them onto uh, cells in the lab, you'll see the majority of them are not. So the estimate is about one in every 10,000 viral particles. Is So in order for an HIV infection to work, it needs a whole bunch of different variants. Or do you think it just needs uh, one or two successful variants in order to infect? They've done studies to show that it's called a bottleneck, that if in a sex partner, that sex partner might have lots of different HIV viruses um, body. When they have sex with, an, with a partner and transmit that, um, it looks like there's only one virus that gets through. So it's not like a new infection comes with a hundred new viruses. It's, there seems to be it's, it's actually fairly difficult for HIV to establish an infection. And usually only one virus is able to get through and to establish an infection where it starts to replicate in a new person. How would you know that? I mean, someone was, you know, having sex, they're not going to like preferentially only get, you know, certain kinds of viruses. I would think a whole swarm of them, you know, with different variations would enter. 
So there must be a, uh, a culling or I guess the ones that are effective in fact, and the ones that aren't just stay resonant and eventually get consumed by the immune system. What they've done is they've looked at, tried to find people who have gotten HIV infections and they detect them within days to within hours of them getting the, that infection. And then they look at the, the genetic sequence of the virus uh, in their body uh, over, over days and over weeks. And they see that it's just a single virus initially, and then it starts to diversify and mutate as uh, time goes on. And they'll identify the partner of that person, and they'll look at the, their genetic sequence and see that that person has all different kinds of genes. So it's, it's in that, uh, it's in the act of transmission where it seems to be quite difficult and only one virus gets through. That's why we think that if we're able to reduce the number of HIV target cells in the genital tract down by 35% or even more, that that might even increase more of that bottleneck and get harder for the virus to, to get through and establish. That's odd because, you know, this is transmitted sexually, but it's similar to, you know, a bunch of sperm entering into a woman and, you know, only one makes it. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. It seems analogous. And I wonder what some of the winnowing mechanisms are and you know, what the, the competition looks like. Um, you know, of course, you don't want to deliberately infect someone. Yeah, the mucus is um, traps a lot of virus. So not a lot of, not all the virus gets through uh, the mucus layers. Not all the viruses are infectious like the, uh, earlier. And that um, even if HIV gets into a cell, doesn't mean it's going to establish in, uh, a productive infection inside that cell. If it gets in one of those resting cells, then it's probably um, not going to be able to uh, fully establish infection. Um, so it's uh, it's a at a, at a per virus and a per cell level, HIV infection is actually fairly rare. Problem, of course, is that when you look at a population level and you look at the number of um, sex acts that people have and all that, HIV transmission is still it still happens much too much, uh, much too often. But on a sort of on a molecular level, it is still a fairly rare. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that uh, you only end up with one variant of HIV. And again, it seems to be like some sort of winnowing process. It's just really interesting. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of um, research that went into identifying what are the, those are called founding viruses. What, what are the characteristics of a founding virus? And if we can um, understand that only certain characteristics allow a virus to get it, uh, to establish an infection, then maybe we can target HIV prevention to, uh, to that particular virus. The approach that I like with our aspirin is that no matter what variant of HIV is out there, uh, they all still need to have the susceptible host cell to infect. And if we can reduce the host cell, then hopefully no matter what virus variant people are being exposed to, decrease the infection. Well, what, what's different about the different types of HIV that infect people? You know, I'm sure that's been studied. Very different, slightly different. What's different about them? And how does that translate into efficacy of infection? Yeah, there's HIV is broken down into a number of subfamilies called clades. And people have looked to see that um, if certain clades of virus are more easily transmitted than others. So in North America, we have clade B virus, whereas in South Africa, there's clade C virus. And then in Kenya, where we do our studies, there's D and E virus. And, uh, and then there's different recombinants of all of those. And people have looked uh, at and some of those sort of subclasses of HIV seem to uh, be more easily transmitted than others. But I think the main the main characteristic of what virus gets transmitted and not comes down to more the 
ability of that virus to replicate a host less dependent on general characteristic of viral. But are there specifics to this or is it, uh, it's, it's still more at the theoretical stage? There's no like specific determinations of what makes a particular confirmation of HIV more effective than another? Yeah, yeah. People have, been, have studied that and they've looked at, that's called the fitness of the virus, how, how um, suitable the virus is to establish infection. And um, uh, the fitness has to do with the binding affinity of the, the receptor of the virus, which is 120, how well that binds the host receptors, and then also the um, molecules that help duplicate the genetic material of the virus, the polymerases, how well they work. Um, how well the reverse transcriptions and all that. So there's a number of different factors identified that, that improve the fitness of the virus. Okay, so very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? My lab has a webpage, folklab.com, and uh, people are welcome to, to visit that and um, learn a little bit more about HIV prevention uh, studies that we, we do. And we also do some COVID studies and HIV um, therapy studies, lots going on in, in the lab. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, thanks for the interest. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.